We're going to begin by, uh, by, by reading our scriptures for this morning, uh, beginning in Psalm 103. Hear the word of the Lord. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from him. 1 John 1, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As Joel said earlier, we are in a catechism series, which is a series that's about knowing and living the truth, about knowing what the foundations, the basics, the, the ground of our faith looks like, so as to live out that faith in every context, every relationship, and every environment. If you don't have a solid grounding, a solid footing, and a solid understanding, you go out in the world trying to be and do what you're not sure God or you are made for or what he wants you to be about. And so we've been spending a lot of time in this catechism. We are now on question number 25, which we're going to talk about this morning. So here's the question. I'm actually going to have you listen this time. We're not going to read it. I want you to just, just listen as I read it. The question is, does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? And the answer says, yes. Yes. Because Christ's death on the, Christ, on the cross fully paid the penalty for our sin, God graciously imputes Christ's righteousness to us as if it were our own and remembers our sins no more. This morning, we're going to look at two fundamental elements that are answered in this question, that are answered in this answer of the question. And there are, two, there are these two things. One, that you have Christ's righteousness. And the second, that all your sins are forgiven. That you have Christ's righteousness and all of your sins are forgiven. Okay, as you listen to the answer, you saw the words that God graciously imputes Christ's righteousness. What does imputes Christ's righteousness mean? Well, first of all, let's ask, what is righteousness? What is righteousness? It's one of those words that shows up in lots of songs. It's kind of a Christian word. What is righteousness? Righteousness is perfect standing, perfect moral standing before God. It's being 100% right in the eyes of God. That's righteousness, a right, perfect standing before God. As we saw earlier in the catechism, what God commands should always be done. What God forbids should never be done. Righteousness. So what does impute mean? I don't remember the last time I used impute in a normal sentence at work or in relationships. So I'm assuming you're like me and you haven't used the word impute. So what does impute mean and why, why stick with that word? Well, impute means to think of as belonging to someone and therefore to cause it to belong to that person. Okay? To think of something as belonging to someone and thereby having it actually belong to them. That's what it means to impute. All right. Now, double imputation is what I wanted to say from the pulpit for a long time. 
Most of you are thinking double amputation? No, that's misuse of like, that's when you don't know how to handle a chainsaw. That's double amputation. Double amputation is something that is central core to the Christian faith. It's actually so pivotal that it should shape most of how we relate to God and understand our relationship to him. And so we're going to talk about it very briefly. Double amputation means this. It means that when Christ suffered, here's the first, that when Christ suffered and died for our sins, our sins were imputed to Christ. God thought of our sins as belonging to Jesus. And he paid for them and for the penalty for them. God thought of our sins as belonging to Jesus, and so they did. He imputed our sins onto Christ. That's the first imputation. The second is God's gracious God graciously imputes Christ's righteousness to us, which means that God thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. Uh, he, he regards it as belonging to us. The old word, he reckons it to our account, our account as though it belonged to us. In this way, Jesus' righteousness becomes ours it is not our righteousness. It is and will always be his righteousness, but it is ours. Which is why in, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that his goal is to be found in him, in Christ. Not having a righteousness of his own that comes from obeying the law, from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, I know better than to think that that's just like, okay, yeah, got it. Uh, one of my favorite episodes of The Office is when um, uh, Oscar tries to explain to Michael Scott what, um, what a surplus is. And Michael, after listening for about two minutes, says, okay, can you explain it to me like I'm an eight-year-old? And I think that's, well, you know, kind of comedic. But the reality is actually that C.S. Lewis said years ago that if you have a theological understanding of something and you can't explain it to a kindergartner, you don't understand it. If you, if you don't actually really are able to, to say, okay, look, let me put this down into way basic, simple terms, you, you can't actually explain it. And so this morning what I'd like to do is I'm going to give you an opportunity to experience what it would be like for you to share this with your kindergartner or 10th grader, whichever, the kind of, it could be the same sometimes, you know, um, by doing a little bit of a, of a role play explanation. So I need kind of the, the average Joe, the average man. Um, so I'm just going to pick someone who seems, let's go with Jason. Jason, David, why don't you come on up, buddy? Um, Jason, you're going to be my guinea pig. I have a microphone for you. Oh, great. <laughs> Only answer correctly, if you don't mind. This is Jason David, ladies and gentlemen. Just be grateful it wasn't you. Um, all right, Jason. All right, imagine that in order for you to receive a relationship with God, to be received into heaven and to be able to have a present relationship with God, that you had to have a ticket, okay? okay. And this ticket looks like this. Righteousness. Now, this is a fancy ticket. Printed it this morning. As we said, righteousness is 100%ness of rightness. It's 100% of not doing wrong. It's 100% of doing right at all times. And so... Let me begin by asking you, uh, out, of, out of all righteousness, like how much righteousness, let's say out of zero to 100, do you have? How much righteousness do you have? Zero. Theologians. Shouldn't bring <laughs> theologians up here. 
Zero percent. That is correct. Um, <clears throat> so if you had, you can hold this now. Oh, you can't hold this yet. Oh. So if you had, if you had, if you had any sins in your life, then you would not be righteous. Correct. And if you had, let's say, 99% righteousness, which if you ask most people and every teenager I ever asked, I'd be like, hey, so, so how righteous do you think I am? And, you know, the humble ones are in the low 50s, and then, the, you know, the homeschool kids are always in the 90s. Um, <laughs> let's say you're 99%. If someone said, I think I'm 99% righteous, I think I, think I got a lot going on for me, and, and, yeah. but they'd done one thing wrong, would they have righteousness? No. All right. So, oh. you have unrighteousness. That's not yeah. UN righteousness, just so we're clear. So you have unrighteousness. Mm -hmm. Jason, do you have righteousness? No. It's not terribly hard. <laughs> because you don't have righteousness, the Bible tells us that, that you are, you're destined to death. You're destined to ultimate separation from God to have no relationship with him because he requires perfect righteousness. That's what it looks like to have a relationship with him. And so you have no opportunity in your unrighteousness, zero or 99%, to be able to meet that requirement. That is bad news for you. Now, even if, let's say, from now on, you made a commitment. You said, from now on, I'm no longer going to sin. I'm going to act righteously from now on, no, no longer. Would that change the fact that you are unrighteous? No. It wouldn't change anything. You would still be just as unrighteous because you're not perfectly 100% righteous. That is indeed bad news. Now, if you're doing this with your child or with a teenager, you want to let that sit for a little bit because most of them said, oh yeah, I think I got 50% or 70% or 80% and now you get to let them know you got nothing. And so you, you get the opportunity to let that sit a little bit because candidly, most teenagers and especially young teenagers and most children think of themselves as good people. If you talk to most children, they'll be like, well, I, I think I'm, overall, I'm a, I'm a good person. Like, I, you know, I, yeah, I punch my sister sometimes, but overall, I'm a good person. And it's very important for some of the reality of perfection versus your best to kind of sink in a little bit. And so once you've let it sink in with them a little bit, you let, that, let the sufficiency of the bummer kind of settle into them, making them wonder why in the world they agreed to have this kind of conversation with you, I understand. Mm -hmm. You then get to share the good news. And the good news is Jesus. So, David, why don't you come on up here? It seems like to choose someone that has both plaid and a beard um, is the right, the right, the right context. So fell short. there is a long, there's a long biblical dialogue that we can have about the righteousness of Jesus. That's what we've been talking about, about him being perfectly God and perfectly man, and that because he was perfectly God, that he was indeed perfect righteousness. That everything that God had for him to do, he did. Everything that God told him not to do, he did not do. He did only what the Father said. He lived a perfect, righteous life. So I would ask, is Jesus, does Jesus have righteousness? Yes. See, it is good news. We went from no to yes. So now, this is the beauty of double imputation. What God did is he took the unrighteousness of Jason and of all mankind, and he imputed it to Christ. He thought of it as belonging to Christ. And then on the cross, he punished unrighteousness. 
It was imputed to Christ. It was thought of as his, and therefore it was his. But the double side says it doesn't end there. It's not like, like, like Jason is now just a neutral being. No, he receives the righteousness of Christ. God imputes the righteousness that belongs only to Christ to Jason and to you and to me. It's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One was imputed and the other was imputed. And so today I would ask you, Jason, Jason, do you have righteousness? Yes. You do. Amen. You can have a seat. That in a nutshell. So can you, David? Thank you. In a nutshell, that is double imputation. Now, you may seem, okay, it's, it's, it's cheesy and we're just pushing papers around. The full wrath of God that belonged to all the unrighteousness of man was poured out on Christ Jesus. And the perfection of all his life, which is the living out of all your life rightly, was given to us. That is the gift of the imputation of righteousness to us. And now you might say, that's great. So now I can understand it and I can explain it at least to an eighth grader. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Well, I, I actually, I joined John Piper in, in saying that I, I want to personally, as, even as your pastor, be able to stand in front of you, to stand with you at the hour of your death and to be able to look into your face and to tell you that I have the most comforting and best news in the world. That I want to be able to stand across from you or, or across from one of your children through, through a jail cell and be able to say, I have the best news in the world. Remember, Christ is your righteousness. Christ is your righteousness. Your righteousness is not here in you on your record. It is in heaven. Christ is your righteousness. No amount of faith when you're strong is going to make it more so, and no amount of weak faith is going to make it less so. Christ is your righteousness. It is perfect, and it is perfect because it's Christ's righteousness. So therefore, don't look to yourself. You can look and lean on him. Christ's righteousness means it is well with your soul. Do you know that today? There's a lot of things I'm sure that you're trying to figure out in your life. Complications, things that, unmet expectations, challenges that you weren't wanting and we wish it would just go away. Do you know that today, the truest thing about you, John just told me about a guy down the street that fell out of his window and died. And he came over and said, I just want you to know I love you because who knows what life is short. Do you know today that Christ is your righteousness? And because of that, it is well with your soul. It is well with your soul because that transaction, the great exchange has happened for you. Actually, not as an idea, but actually in you and for you. It's tremendous news. God's graciously imputes Christ's righteousness to us, and it is so. So we have righteousness imputed to us. 
But secondly, all our sins are forgiven. All of our sins are forgiven. A few weeks ago, we looked at the question about what is sin. And I want to remind you of this because I think this is one of the most important questions and answers in the whole catechism. Sin is rejecting and ignoring God and the world he created. It's not just doing bad things. It's rebelling against him. It's relational. It's living without reference to him and by not being or doing what he requires in his law. And what's the result of that? Is our death and disintegration of all of creation. Sin is rejecting and ignoring God. That's what sin really and ultimately is. And for some of us, and Art talked a ton about, it is finished, and that is such good news. It is finished, it is well, it is paid. But here's what I've noticed. I've been a pastor about 16 years now, and I've sat with a lot of people talking a lot about a lot of spiritual development, where they're at, discouragement. And I've noticed two fundamental trends in when it comes to forgiveness. That's what I want to talk about this morning. That either I can't be forgiven because my sins are too grievous, or I can't be forgiven because my sins are repeated. Oh, we may say, no, no, yes, I, I know. Uh, the, the, when I stole the little matchbox car when I was in third grade, yeah, I know God's forgiven me about that. But these other two categories, they, they haunt. They haunt even the most devout Christian, the one who has his quiet time, uh, the woman who serves at a soup kitchen. They haunt us. And so I want to speak to both of those this morning. Repetitive sin. Is repetitive sin forgiven? Is it too often repeated and can it still be forgiven? Uh, you know what this looks like. Uh, you find yourself sinning. And then you repent earnestly from the heart. I don't, don't want to do this. I, I, Lord, please forgive me. And then and it happens again. And then it happens again. And then it happens again. And you repent and it happens again. And you repent and it happens again. And you repent and it happens again. And, and, and weeks turn into months. Months turn into years. And you find yourself believing that the reality of your relationship with God is primarily determined about how you're handling that particular area of repetitive sin. Not the other stuff where every once in a while you get your temper flares. or every, No, no. Other areas that seem to just come home every single time. When you're mad, sad, tired, angry, upset, afraid, they keep showing up. And as time goes on, what starts sneaking in, and Satan loves to talk about this. He loves to whisper this into our ear. He says, how can God actually forgive you when you continue to sin in these same ways? How can he really? I mean, look at you. If you were really sorry, if you were really repentant, this would end. I don't think you can be forgiven anymore. Now, if you haven't thought this ever before, that you're in a tremendous minority. What do we do with and how do we deal with repeated change? We find ourselves repenting for the first time and, and believing that maybe, maybe this, is, this will do it, but it, it doesn't. Now, one of the realities of repentance is that we don't actually repent fully the first time or even for quite a while about what is going on in our lives, especially things that seem to show up in small ways. And so the question is, can and will God forgive me every time I ask him for forgiveness? Not if I'm, not if I'm lying or, or pretending like I'm asking for repentance. 
actually repenting. But, but the times where I'm earnest, even if it's the 90th time, the 120th time, will he forgive me? And the answer, loved ones, is yes. You see, oftentimes we find ourselves trying to determine God's forgiveness based on the earnestness and perfection of our repentance. How well am I repenting or how, how earnest am I in it? You cannot earn God's forgiveness through any works, including the purity and perfection of your repentance. You can't repent well enough for God to be like, now that one counts. That's not how it works. Real repentance receives forgiveness every single time. Even when your repentance is spotty and partial and incomplete. Yes, does he know it's spotty, partial and incomplete? Yes, and does he forgive? Yes. Yes, he does. But when you repent for about something over and over and you find that there's no change, a question arises. And, and the natural question should be, and I think is rightly stated, are we repenting rightly? And I would submit that most of the time there's, there's a wrong, wrong, weak, or insufficient repentance in two particular directions. The first is this. I'm usually repenting of the superficial issues, not the root issues. I'm usually repenting of the superficial issues that are repeating over and over again, and I'm never repenting of the root issues. I tend to try and control and manage the fruit of my sin instead of the root areas that are actually having all the power. I think we talked a little bit about this when we talked about the, uh, the commandment, thou shalt not lie. But I will lie to protect my reputation, for me to make sure that I'm competent and, and show that I'm capable. Mostly what I'm saying is I'll lie to show that, I, to, to, to reveal, to not reveal that I'm incompetent. Being incompetent feels like death to me. So, so I will lie. Now, if I find myself lying and, and then coming to God and saying, Lord, forgive me, I've lied again. Someone asked me a question and I pretend like I knew something and I didn't actually know. I pretended like I had, I had accomplished more than I really had. Forgive me, Father. I, I'm, so, I'm so embarrassed. Forgive me for, for, for that. And then it happens again. It happens again. If I continue to go and repent about the lying without addressing the fact that I am controlled by the fact that I have to be perceived well by those around me, if I don't go after that root, I will just continue to lie. And you know what? I won't see any change because I'm not actually repenting about the real thing. I'm just repenting about the near thing, not the real thing. So that's the one dynamic. If I find myself repenting over the same sin and experiencing no change, no victory, no growth, no movement, then I'm possibly, likely, repenting about the near thing and not the real thing. As my friend Nate always says, the thing, what's the thing under the thing? What's the thing under the thing? But the second thing, the second thing that I tend to notice most of all is that people find, we find ourselves confessing but not repenting. Confessing but not repenting. Now, as we read, John 1 9 says, 1 John 1 9 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive our sins. So if we confess, which is to agree with God about the wrong thing we've done or the good thing we have failed to do, if we agree with God, then we're confessing. I, I did not, or I did. It is true, I have done this. And it says he is faithful and just to forgive us. 
So good news. Confession yields forgiveness. God says, I will, I forgive you, absolutely. But it will not automatically yield change. Now, this has been somewhat of a soapbox. A couple of you guys have been around me. You've heard me talk about this. That one of the patterns I'm seeing, especially around our brand of evangelicalism, where we don't, we're kind of a church that doesn't pretend like we have our crap together. We, we acknowledge the fact that we're in process, that we're broken people, and that Jesus is doing transformative work in us. And if he doesn't, we have no hope. That's Roswell Community Church in a nutshell. That's a, that's a true thing. And he has that power, and he can, and he wants to, to the glory of his name. That's really good news. But in that, what can happen sometimes in us is that we find ourselves confessing. Man, I, I keep doing this. I've done this. And, and we'll acknowledge the full gravity of it, the full magnitude of it. But repentance implies a turn. It's not just a grieving of the thing that I've done and an articulation of it, though those are pivotal. They're definitely the first steps in repentance. There's an absence of absorbing the depth of it and charting a new course that will likely cost me much. See, confession, confession actually has in and of itself a sense of relief. When you confess your sins, whether it's to God or to a friend or to a spouse, there's a, there's a relief that happens. There's the bringing it into the light. And God, by the way, made us that way, that it would bring that kind of relief. And, and like, okay, I'm not having to carry something and pretend like I'm something. I, 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 can, I can let this go. And I, I'm going to say it out loud. And I'm going to confess it. That God, this is wrong. That this was wrong. I did this against you. This was wrong. But if there's not a purposeful and intentional ch uh, set of choices that are going to lead me to break that pattern, then change won't happen. Oftentimes with confession, I want the relief of confession without the cost of repentance. I want the relief of confession without the cost of true repentance. Repentance is heartfelt sorrow for sin, followed by a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk differently with God. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Often our confession is insanity. We expect that this time calling something what it is will bring about the change. It cannot. And remembering that, of course, our sin is first and foremost against God, right? It's rejection, ignoring, and rebelling against him. It means that he's the one we have to deal with. He's the one we have to do this work with. Uh, one of the um, big fan of the, uh, the Hamilton uh, uh, Broadway show, listen to the music a ton, and I'm actually listening to a biography on Alexander Hamilton. One of the things that um, I think captures this moment perfectly is in, in 1797, Alexander Hamilton, who was an incredible writer and published more pages than you know, it seemed like anybody at his time, he wrote a 96-page pamphlet. And he described in this pamphlet an illicit affair he'd had with a woman named Mariah Reynolds. 96 pages. It was certainly clear, and he certainly expressed all of it. But most of the pages were filled with, and the reason for him actually writing this pamphlet was that there had been accusations or hints about the fact that he, while he was Secretary of the Treasury, that he had actually used some funds inappropriately, that he had embezzled the government. And he could not tolerate that. And so he wrote this pamphlet and confessed to the world, published it. it you can see it in the Smithsonian. He published this pamphlet expressing the fact that he'd had an affair with this woman, a married woman, while he had children and had a wife. Why? 
Well, he did so because the thought of being known as someone who had embezzled from this, his government, whom he loved, from, the, from this republic that he had been so committed to developing and that his reputation would be tarnished in that area, made it seem that the reality of the pain he would cause his family was nothing. Which is why most of the pages of the pamphlet are a defense of his fiscal history. Not a repentance or a declaration of what he'd done. Not a sorrow over the cost. That's confession, not repentance. That's going over the near thing, not the real thing. It would ultimately kill him by the bullet of Aaron Burr. Most of us get a sense of our forgiveness by looking at our sin and then trying to deal with it with God. Uh, one of my favorite illustrations of what it looks like to how do we move into the realities of our sin um, is from John Lynch in a book called um, True Face. And it's such a great picture. He says, most of us find ourselves with, with our sin in front of us and, and Jesus on the other side. And trying to say, like, how can I manage this or, or like, spray some perfume on it or make it look better or, or promise something so that we can be close and be connected. I want intimacy and connection with God, but, but there's this thing in between us. And, and that that's a broken view of the gospel. That the gospel has not Jesus, doesn't have Jesus on the other side of my sin with me trying to move towards him by my goodness, but him on the other side of my sin next to me saying, all is well, you are forgiven. Now let's look at the reality of what you're choosing and let's work on this together, bringing this about, bringing holiness into the areas of your sinfulness. He's not on the other side of your sin. He's on your side to help you in it. So we live partially forgiven instead of living in the reality that all of our sins are forgiven. We live partially forgiven by believing that our repeated and repetitive sins cannot be forgiven. And then we live partially forgiven by believing that our odious, egregious, and grievous sins cannot be forgiven. I've heard people say, I know, I feel like God can, but God's forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. You ever heard anybody say that? I just, have you said that? I just, I know, I know God's forgiven me, you know, kind of like he has to, like we have this contract thing and he has to forgive me, but he, he doesn't want to. And, and I, I just can't forgive myself. I think more of us say that in our own heart than we may say it out loud. And there's two, one of two things that are happening when that's, when that's taking place. The first, and this is counterintuitive, is that, is that we're incredibly proud and self-righteous. That when we find ourselves saying, I just can't forgive myself. What we're really declaring is that we can't, we believe that we are better than the kind of behavior that is exhibited in what we've done. That we're the kind of person who, who would not do or exhibit that kind of behavior. And we're unable to reconcile the reality of what's happened and what we've done with what we feel like we have to be in order to be acceptable to God, to ourselves, and to the world. I can't reconcile the fact that, that this happened and I did this when I'm supposed to be this kind of person and so I, I, can't, I can't forgive myself. It is more important for me to, un, to, to wrestle with the fact and to, and to be sorrowing over the fact that I, I'm, I'm just a, I must be a, a terrible person when actually in reality I'm just proud. I'm arrogant. I've elevated my own sense of goodness or the goodness I should have over the reality of Christ's righteousness. 
In the, great, in the great substitution, what I've done is I'm trying to take my righteousness of what I should be, not what I actually am, but what I should be, and slide it in front of Christ and bring that over, impute that righteousness onto this bad guy. Which is why most people in these situations will say things like, I can't believe I did something like that. I can't believe I continue to do something like that. I can't believe I did this terrible thing that had these massive... Imp- it's almost like it wasn't even me. I couldn't be the kind of person who would do this. Loved ones, it happened, which means that you are the kind of person that can do that. And and trying to bring about the righteousness that you should have or should be over unto your own record to be okay won't work. It's not working. It never will work for you. But I have good news, as I've said before. You are more sinful and more broken than you ever could have possibly imagined. And in Christ, you are more loved than you ever dared dream. So either you're finding yourself unable to, go, to get over the saying, I, I can't forgive myself. God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Either because you're proud or because you failed something that is your actual God and Savior. It's not that you can't forgive yourself. It's that it won't forgive you. And since it, whatever it is, is operating as your savior and giving you a sense of well-being, of identity, it has superseded the voice of God. So whether it's your parents' approval or how your children have turned out and what has happened in their lives, whether it's the, the failures to your career goals that have not manifested themselves in a timely manner, and you failed them, they won't forgive you. And so you can't forgive yourself. If you had only, if you had just, you shoulda. Only my real self, only me as I actually am, can experience the forgiveness of God. Not as I should be, not as I maybe will be 10 years from now. Only me as I really am right now can experience the reality of God's forgiveness. We cannot substitute some future potential different righteousness. We must rely on his and and his alone. The really good news is that your sins are forgiven. God has declared them so. He has made them so by putting them on Christ. And, and more significantly, the scripture tells us that he remembers them no more. Most of us have a really hard time believing that, but the scriptures are clear. Psalm 103, as I read earlier, said, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Hebrews 8:12 said, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The Bible uses language like that all the time. As far as the east is from the west, a washing thoroughly of our sins, a removing of them from us, for God's forgetting them. Now, now it's us to be clear, God doesn't actually forget your sins. It's not possible for him. He knows all things at all times. So why, why does the scripture tell us that God doesn't remember our, our sins? I think it's because, in a very clear way, it's the fact that we ask the question, does he remember that he says, I don't, I don't think of your sins. I don't, I remember them 
no more. Most of us have relationships with people where we know and we say, hey, I'm, I know I did this. We confess to someone. We say, I apologize. I want to ask for your forgiveness. And they say, oh, you know, you have my forgiveness. You already got it. And we've had too many relationships where we happen to know that that's actually just code for, I'm going to hold this over here and I'm going to bring it up later. Right? And we know that God knows all things. And he knows not only the reality of what we've done, but the things that we've thought about doing that we never have. The things that are, that are more egregious and more terrible than anything that will actually manifest itself in our body that happened in our hearts and in our minds. He knows these things. Does he really forget them though? I mean, really? Because we feel like we need to know. I mean, how do I come into his presence if, if they're still kind of on his mind? If he's thinking about me and he's thinking about those things also, how can he possibly love me? How can he possibly want to be with me? And so God tells us, that he remembers our sins no more. I love the way R.C. Sproul says it. He says, the glory of the gospel is not that God, just because he's a nice guy, decides not to hold our sins against us, to wink and to nudge. No, the glory of the gospel is that my sins are already dealt with, already punished. Check this out. There is no grudge, not because he has forgotten, but because he remembered sins on Calvary. It's not because he's forgotten that you can have peace. It's because he remembered them fully on Christ. He didn't forget them. He placed them. So which is why, which is why when you find yourself coming before God at any moment with whatever egregious or banal, ordinary sins, and you find yourself coming to him, he is not remembering your sins with you. He has already remembered them with his son and Christ paid for them. So in your heart, in your mind, when you find yourself opening your Bible, beginning to pray, or even coming to confess your sins to him, remember that he is not remembering them with you. Not because he's forgotten them and put them in some box he can't remember. That's just ridiculous philosophy thinking. No, no he is not remembering them with you. They are not on your account anymore. I was reminded this week by uh, reading back through a book called Good and Beautiful God that I really love. There's a quote in there by, um, by Richard Foster who says, at the heart of God is the desire to forgive. And the author follows up by saying, God loves to forgive even more than we long to be forgiven. The reason I put that up on the screen is I want you to think about that for a minute. What if, with all that is a reality of your life right now, all the stuff that comes from your past, all the repetitive sins of your life, what if God's disposition to you right now is that he is way more inclined and desirous of bringing forgiveness to you than you are even of being forgiven? because that's actually the reality of how it is. From eternity past, he has been more desirous to bring forgiveness to you than you have ever been to receive it for yourself. Imagine, just imagine if that was the disposition of your heart as you related to him, that you're not walking into a room with a God who's going like, seriously, you again? No, who's going like, yes, you're here, you're here. 
Forgiveness is available. I, I'm so glad you're here to receive what I can't wait for you to have. He is eager for your forgiveness. What if that was the fabric of your relationship with him? That you're walking into a benevolent God who is ready for you. He can't wait to give you what he has already purchased for you. What if, what if that was the reality of your relationship with him? What if that saturated your morning as you got up in the morning remembering the day before, as you remembered your day at night laying down, feeling the remorse, sorrow, guilt over whatever hasn't been or whatever has been? If instead of the block of he must be discouraged and disappointed and frustrated with me, that his forgiving heart is so open you could not want it more than him. What if? What if that was the reality of your life? Frankly, I believe that your repentance would have a whole different perspective. I believe there would be a freedom in us. I think there would be a joy in coming into it. There would be a belief of his love for us, which is the only ultimate hope of there being any real change long-term. He is eager to forgive, and he has forgiven all. The beautiful thing about being forgiven is that we become agents of forgiveness. To the degree that you understand the magnitude, the power, and the beauty of the disposition of God from all eternity past through his son to forgive you, to that degree, will you find yourself moving out into your world to the people in your life, especially those who hurt you the most, and you will move in with forgiveness. You will mirror the eagerness of God to forgive you with your eagerness to forgive them. That gets really hard. I thought repentance was tough. Forgiving those who have harmed, ridiculed, rejected, disappointed over and over, Repeatedly, egregiously, but by the power of the gospel because Christ is my righteousness. I now move with that very disposition to the degree in which I believe him, to the degree in which I see him having paid for me. That's the power of believing that all of your sins are forgiven. It changes your relationships. It could transform all of your relationships. What if we believed that? God, will you help us believe that? Let's pray. Father, oh, how we long, how we long to see you rightly, to understand ourselves, where we stand, where we are, where we are in reference to you rightly, so that when we pray and sing and think and read, when we interact with our family and those who disappoint us, that we would be smack dab in the center of how it really is, which is the only place from which you can actually meet us. Father, break our hearts. Give us a repentant spirit. Give us the courage to do the real cost of repentance, not just the relief of confession. But above all, Lord, will you place in us a clear and beautiful picture of your disposition towards us because of Christ, that we would always, without fearing, without shame, and without guilt, walk towards you in order to receive all that you have for us in him. Will you do that? Please, Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. pray these things because we have nowhere else to go.
because you are our only hope. And we pray this by faith, believing that Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe. In Christ's name, amen. We have the opportunity now to come and receive the body and the blood of Christ, which is the very symbol of this great forgiveness which is available to us in him. He says, remember me when you take this. Remember my body broken for you and my blood shed for you that actually reconciled you to me, that allowed that great imputation to take place, the great exchange. And this is what we remember. We remember the great exchange with the same freedom with which you have to approach Christ, you can approach this table and receive everything you need. He has everything you need. If you don't belong to Christ, if you've not given your life to him, this is an opportunity for you to do just that, to be able to say, yeah, I actually have made a mess of my life or I've made a really clean version of a mess of my life and I must have someone to rescue me from it. He's done that. This is the day of salvation for you. So if you find yourself saying, Lord, I need you, I need you. I have never seen you or wanted you, but I need you and I must have you. Then come forward, accept Christ Jesus as your savior and receive the body and blood broken for you. So loved ones, come, receive the body of Christ broken and his blood shed for you.